0: Welcome to the Sinica Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, coming to you from the pop-up Chinese studios here in Beijing. I am your host, Jeremy Golkorn. Alone today because Kaiser is playing a heavy metal gig inside the U.S. Embassy, or so he claims. But perhaps he's not here because he just wanted to get away from the topic of contemporary art in China, about which he is something of a curmudgeon. So (laughs) to discuss this, I have two leading experts on the subject. One is uh, Matthew Niederhauser, who has been a uh, Seneca guest in the past. He's an artist, photojournalist, and cinematographer. His current projects are the photography project... Counterfeit Paradises, and a film called Capital Creation, capital with a K, like Das. Our second guest um, is, this is his first time on Seneca, uh, a guy I've known for more than a decade in Beijing, uh, Philip Tenari. He is director of the Ulun Center for Contemporary Art in Beijing, and he's founding editor of Leap, a bilingual magazine about contemporary art in China, and probably the most creative uh, and innovative media product to have come out of China in the last few years. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks. Yeah, it's me? great to be it's here again. So let's, uh, I, I didn't get you to say your voices, Matthew. Just say hello again so people know what your voice sounds like since you're both American. Matthew Niederhauser. Hello. I am Matthew. And Phil Tanari. Hi. Okay, so Phil. you can tell the difference now, right? Um, <laughs> can we start this show with a little potted history, if you will, of contemporary art in China? When do we? When would you say it started, Phil? What was the founding moment of contemporary art in China?
1: Uh, it was on September twenty seventh, nineteen seventy nine, um, which was the day that the a group known as the Stars hung their creations on the fence surrounding the East Gate outside of the National Art Museum of China, a garden that remained in its pristine late seventies form until just a few years ago, year or two ago, when they built a subway station there. Um, but that exhibition which was named stars after the idea that you know everyone was a point of light instead of the world revolving around a single sun, i.e. Mao Zedong, tracks the opening of the beginning of opening and reform, as does kind of the entire history of contemporary Chinese art in the ensuing three and a half decades. And so, if
0: I may bring up Ai Weiwei, just to annoy Kaiser, Ai Weiwei was a, a member of... Uh, the Stars, wasn't he?
1: He indeed was. He was kind of uh, the little brother. I mean, one of the little brothers of the Stars group. You know, his father, of course, being a famous poet and the Stars having a very close connection to the Poetry Journal today. Um, he was providing illustrations and the editors were looking to hang out with his dad. And I think that was probably, you know, part of uh, one of the reasons why why he was involved so early on. I mean, he, he, in fact, has never claimed to have been one of the key protagonists. It was really uh, Huang Rei Um, and Ma Da Shung, a couple. And it was, uh, in fact, very close to the democracy wall movement. And then what happened? Um, Well, I mean, the stars, of course, the exhibition was shut down, you know, within two days by the Dongcheng District Police, and they marched on the City Hall on National Day in 79, peacefully. Um, But then actually they had two more exhibitions completely above ground, one in the Hua Fengzhai, which is the uh, Beijing Artists Association studio inside of uh, Beihai, and the next, uh, uh, later in the year, at the Namok, inside the Namok. And that's an interesting pattern because that repeats itself, say, in 1989, when you have a major exhibition in February, just a few months, of course, before the student movement enters its full-blown form. Um, which opens on February 4th, ironically, the uh, day of, it was Chinese New Year, it was uh, Chu Xi, um, who opens an exhibition on essentially Christmas Eve. I have no idea, but this uh, this opening ends with a gunshot uh, sent by the artist uh, Xiao Lu uh, at the provocation of her boyfriend at the time into her own work. Uh, but it again opens a second time, is shut down a second time by an, an anonymous, an anonymous bomb threat sent by another artist and then runs its course, which is two weeks, which is a fairly typical run for an exhibition at the NAMOC even today. So I guess I'm trying to say that There's this historical narrative about exhibitions that are open and then shut down immediately, but often the actual history is a little bit more complex. And I mean, when we talk about contemporary art in China, one thing we always tend to start talking about is censorship. Uh,
0: And I'm sure that's something we'll explore as we go on. But it's, you know. Well, I mean, maybe let's get into it a little bit because uh, right now, uh, because my memory of first becoming involved in any way with the contemporary art scene was in the 1990s. I was writing a little bit about uh, the art scene for magazine called Beijing Scene. And uh, in the late 1990s, uh, basically, most contemporary art exhibitions would be shut down. Whereas today, we have a situation where rich Chinese people are buying contemporary art. You know, most situations, it seems there's quite a lot of establishment support for contemporary art. There are, you know, there's a thriving art gallery scene in Beijing. Uh, So how did did we go from the shutdown to the the co-option? Well, I mean... I
1: think that it's really uh, what we have to thank the three represents for that one. Um, And it it coincides exactly with the enshrinement of, of Jiang Zemin orthodoxy into the party charter and the ascension of, of Hu Jintao. Uh, This moment in, let's say between 2002 and 2004, when suddenly contemporary art goes from the basement to the, the ground floor. And that's when you start getting art zones, creative clusters and, and an economy of, of trading work, uh, among legitimate professional
2: people. It also comes out of, as well, like more savvy government bureaucracies who are also starting to realize that straight-up censorship and suppression often creates more noise um, than just allowing some shows to go on. And in some ways, their involvement in, uh, you know, 798 or their tacit approval and is a way of, in some ways, sort of getting their hand in it and being able to control the message to a certain extent. The tipping point may have come in
1: spring of 2003 when there was a major show of contemporary Chinese art at the Centre Pompidou. And the ambassador was invited and the government essentially had to make the decision whether or not to send someone. It was part of the official festivities for the year of China in France. And I think that was the moment at which it was decided uh, better to play along than to try and shut down. That follows also on a a wave of exhibitions happening in state museums, the Shanghai Biennial in 2000, the Guangzhou Triennial in 2002, which kind of paved the way for some sort of official legitimacy for contemporary creation.
0: Can I ask, I mean, is there not, to some extent, a realization on the part of the government that the, the media landscape in China had shifted so dramatically and the intellectual landscape that contemporary art had actually lost its power to move the masses?
1: I remember having a really wonderful conversation with one of the editors at Dushu in 2005. Which
0: is, uh, how would you say, or summarize Dushu, one of China's most respected...
1: It's like the New York Review of Books. right? Um, and her point, among Menghui, her name is, was that essentially the government made a decision that the artists were not a threat. And they became even less of a threat when they really started to make money and started to care much more about buying apartments and driving fancy cars and all these this other set of cliches we now have about Chinese artists. But that, that all dates to that period in the
0: early 2000s. So, okay, now we're, we're up to now with our artists driving fancy cars or, or what? what, what, what can, can we, how, do, how would we summarize the, this, this, the contemporary art scene in China today? <clears throat> it's, it's complicated because you, you definitely still
2: have a lot of people who are working on the margins – and you have like Songjuang Village where you have, you know, thousands of artists who are congregating in their own sort of little worlds and it's a very internal type scene.
0: And that's Matthew speaking, by the way. I'm sorry, I've done a bad job of so saying I think I, names.
2: I think, I think I have the more easily voice. I think it will be well differentiated. And um, and you, you definitely have the art stars right now who have a lot at stake monetarily and in terms of like greater career arc. And... Um, and um, there, are, you know, almost I feel some uh, some parallels um, that also occurs in journalism in terms of knowing sort of the line and where to cross and a certain level of self censorship. Um, but it's it's so diversified. But I think also what I'm would you know really interested in hearing from Phil is 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 how a younger generation of artists are are sort of coming into this, this new scene where all of a sudden there's a lot of older people who have been very successful internationally and how it's a completely different landscape from, say, as you were discussing, you know, some of these early exhibitions in the 70s and 80s where a lot of these people really had nothing to lose. Um, uh, and now it seems like it's, it's, it's a career path with everything to gain.
1: Yeah, I mean, we opened the year at UCCA with an exhibition called On-Off with a vertical slash between the two, China's Young Artists in Concept and Practice. And actually, the title of the exhibition came from the interface of a piece of software many of your listeners probably use, which is the Astral VPN, um, a name given by an editor at Leap who didn't really read a whole lot of English, but just knew he had this thing at the bottom of his screen, which if you clicked on... Uh, you could get across the firewall and if you had it on off, you were sort of stuck in the Chinese internet. Um, and for these two curators, Sun Dong and Bao Dong, who put the exhibition together, guys who were born kind of at the dawn of reform, uh, like us, um, this dichotomy was like a way of thinking about this generation and its whole sensibility, that they were sort of wedged between capitalism and socialism, their parents' reality and their generation's reality, but also between a very established art system and impulses to do more underground kinds of things. And this is definitely, I mean, this generation, people born in the in the late 70s, early 80s, are the first artists in China to have come up with a contemporary art system that is kind of inherently international around them. Of course, there was always, you know, the giant system of the socialist uh, artists' associations and of the official academies and such, but, but, you know, art, at its best is kind of an avant-garde and this cultural formation has ingrained itself in the international consciousness and the, the kind of architecture of it inside of China inherently sort of accounts for um, interest domestic and international in a really interesting way. Just to give a very simple example, last week uh, we were all in Miami for the Art Basel Miami Beach Fair. and a very famous uh, couple of collectors, Donna Mira Rubel, who run a place called the Rubel Family Collection, it's a private museum there, which tends to sort of foreshadow trends in collecting uh, in, in the US, but also internationally, opened an exhibition called 28 Chinese. And the vast majority of the artists were actually artists from our exhibition on off um, who, who were suddenly put in front of an international audience in, in a way different from how that's happening before.
2: Well, how would you describe the reception that occurred there? Um, considered like versus like the pace booth, you know, which will have like Zhang Xiao Gongs and Li Song
0: songs and and you know a lot of established established artists. artists, yeah, and artists who are working with artists who are already selling their works for millions and millions of dollars,
1: and who are oh. who are by and large working with kind of easily distinguishable. Uh, political and social iconographies, right? So what you have a lot among this younger generation are much more conceptual positions um, just in the realm of painting, which is always kind of like the easiest place to make comparisons. You know, this younger generation seems almost overwhelmingly interested in abstraction and in process-based abstraction, uh, which to a Western eye almost looks kind of like a return to 70s op art, uh, but you know, coming from this, from this very real place here, it's 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 quite a surprising shift. But how much
0: of that is because they don't have the balls to say anything interesting about politics? Well,
1: I mean, I think there's a couple things going on. One is they don't feel it quite as deeply, and they're consumer subjects just like the rest of us. The other is that they're extremely resistant to what's seen as pandering by an earlier pandering generation. to the Western market. Yeah. I mean, what Jeremy Barmay famously called Packaged Descent.
0: Hmm.
2: Yeah, I I did an interview recently with Bao Dong, uh, one of the curators for On Off, and um, it's actually something I've been getting from a lot of uh, artists, especially older artists, and um, when I asked them what do they feel about a younger generation, or I was talking with uh, Yao Lu, um, the, uh, the photographer who's also working at Kafa, and um and, you know, they keep on describing them uh, as not working as a Chinese artist, but as an artist. They're, they're concerned uh, more about an international community of people involved in creative processes rather than sort of trying to identify themselves as Chinese in the first place to a certain extent.
0: Which is, in some ways, remarkable. I mean, if, if if that's true, that that really is the only sort of art form where you have that. I mean, well, Chinese literature is overwhelmingly concerned with being Chinese. Chinese film, theater, music, right. music is actually. I, I get, I got a lot of that as well. Especially
2: when I was working on some of my older projects right. with musicians, where you know they get a lot of flack. It's it's like, well, you guys sound like the Ramones, or you sound like uh, some other sort of Western group. And it's like, well, yeah, they're playing with the same instrumentation and in musical mode. We're a punk
0: band. <laughs> punk, yeah, exactly.
2: Yeah. And sort of like what is, you know, essentially new or improvised or, or whatnot. But a lot of them would say the same thing. It's like, we're really not concerned with, with being a Chinese band. We're concerned about interacting with a community, an international community of musicians. And in some ways, you know, I, I I feel where they're coming from with some of the art, but at the same time, I, I you know you don't you don't want the situation of what you were calling packaged dissent, but at the same time, it you know, it feels like there's still. Potentially a powder keg that could come off where if people really, you know, win at, you know, a lot of what's occurring politically and socially, you know, it's such a dramatically changing landscape. Sure. It, it just seems. If know, if people right are
0: ignoring way. politics and society, yeah. then perhaps it's lacking. There's also.
2: A- yeah. Well, you you might put it this way. Um
1: Art for art's sake is a great power privilege. Right. Essentially. Right. I mean, the. the Freeing oneself of the burden of having to narrate the national situation is more than anything a marker of of arrival geopolitically. So I, 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 I would chalk it all up to that. I mean, it's this is the first generation of artists from China who can paint abstract paintings and people will take them seriously because they're not looking
0: necessarily for Mao with a coat can. But are they just impressed because they're Chinese? I mean, uh, can I come to the question of like, how much of contemporary Chinese art is just crap? Uh, and uh, I'd like to ask two questions. The first question is the, the first generation who succeeded, the Zhang Gangs of this world, who You know, Fang Yijun, I mean, people who are rumored to have vast warehouses of of like sweatshops producing their paintings that they don't actually do any art themselves. They've just figured out how to do the market. Is that true? How much of that generation's work is, in fact, crap? And then the new generation that we've been talking about, are they following along the same line? Uh, Are they doing, you know, are they still actually uh, making their own works? And how much of the interest in them is, is attributable to the fact that people are interested in China?
1: Well, there's a couple of things going on. I mean, one is that, um, well, okay, the older generation, I would say most of those people, the most interesting moment in their work is f- somewhere between 89 and 93, right? When it was really coming from a very deep place. And they made a mistake, a lot of them did, which was not... Necessarily getting assistance, which came later and which uh, tends to be exaggerated, and which, by the way, is something artists all over the world do. Leonardo um, da Vinci himself, oh, yeah, or even uh, or look at Jeff Koons. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, conceptual art is not about the hand; it's about mm-hmm. the mind. Um, but, but the question is more. You know, why didn't they come up with n- newer symbolic vocabularies or or styles? I mean, the one who who consistently shifts styles is the one who's now the most highly valued of all, which is Zeng Fan right? Who painted a few years of guys with masks and then a few years of uh, sort of chaotic brushstrokes, Luanbi, as they're called, you know, sort of vaguely Pollock-esque um, explosions of color and, and stroke um, and kind of comes up with a different style, very... Uh, intentionally, every three or four years, and in fact, someone actually told him at one point that that's really the way to preserve, you know, your position and your value is to is to keep changing the way you paint. Um, so that's um, that's a that's a that's a market question. That's a stylistic question. The question of whether um, younger artists are going in that route is is also interesting. But you're not going
0: to be drawn on it.
1: No, well, I mean, you know, like, for example, a lot of these artists in this show at the Rubells or in our on-off show are, are not quite at that point in their careers yet. I mean, I still, I think there's a lot of, I think there's a lot of creative energy in play right now. I mean, I actually think it's a very interesting moment for art in China um, that all of these factors we were just talking about mean that you, you have a generation that is ready to take some risks. I mean, whether those are going to be the risks of speaking out against the order around them or... Whether they're going to be more purely aesthetic and artistic kinds
2: of risks, I think we'll, we'll still have to see. Do you agree, Matthew, that
0: this is a, a, a oh, interesting I'm, moment?
2: I think it is an interesting moment. What I but what I find so interesting about it is how they're being incubated to a certain extent, you know, and the fact that you know instead of putting on a show at Namak, um, which would have a very limited uh, you know audience, um, that they're sort of 're they're, they're being grandstanded, you know, being at Mime and Basil. It's one of the most glitzy media oriented contemporary art spectacles um, that occurs on the planet um, and And as Phil says, it's interesting that you know to see you know even if they're in a very nascent stage of development and they're maybe not possibly producing their their greatest works, um, now that this has occurred. Um, what direction are they going to go? Are they going to pander to a market, to sort of art as a commodity, and especially when you have collectors who see them as an investment? and are going to continue funding their careers and and you have large corporations and law firms each having their divisions in the acquisition of contemporary art, or are they going to possibly take more risks? I
0: mean, uh, and and in that sense, it, it'll what, come out can, can we like return, like what do you mean by taking a risk? I mean, I think my sort of end of my days as, is- sort of not being i was never a serious critic i was writing for beijing scene but being well, following was closely the great,
1: the great underground expat magazine yeah. of, <laughs> of china
0: well yeah you know maybe there deal. was something better like in the in can the may 4th can we talk about your era. glory days no, <laughs> no 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 what a bore and where is uh, scott savage he's in uh, north carolina um <laughs> <laughs> was uh, was it Sun Yu and Peng, what's name? and Peng yeah. the, the, They were the people who started like eating babies and no, eating that little animals. that was Right, Julia yeah. was the eating babies the guy. Eating babies.
1: That was all this very um, strange moment in the late 90s uh, around a group of shows under the rubric of post-sense sensibility. Post-sense and sensibility, sensibility, that's right. Curated by Choujie-Jia. Um, choujie who... who just two years later was essentially completely, I won't say co-opted by, but enfranchised by the official system. And now is a very senior professor at the China Academy of Art in Hangzhou. And so it's, I mean, this is actually what I wrote my master's thesis about, so pardon the uh, sort of glibness, but it was, you know, it was called Sensation to Legitimization. And the amazing thing was just how tight that timeframe was, basically, to go from, This extremely radical form of art making, all in basements and including lots of corpses and animal parts, to cannibalism basically. (laughs) I mean, it was—it's not the sort of stuff you, yeah, you want to like show your parents. Um, And and then right within a few years to have contemporary art part of the kind of mainstream order in some
2: way so what
0: what do you mean when you say take risks now in 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 china today as an
2: artist i mean i'd I'd hate to go back to it but i will also for kaiser's sake is that you you take a look at some of Weiwei's projects like collecting all of the children's names who um died in the sichuan earthquake which were not publicized it's 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 taking a look at places that in some ways, the media, the political and the social order wants to overlook. And for me, at least, it's a much more engaged process and possibly using more direct references in imagery and in words inside the artwork, instead of like dealing with a very sort of abstract
0: metaphor. Okay, but that, wor- that's a political place. risk. That I, That's pretty clear to me. What, what would you consider a creative risk in terms of Chinese art at the moment, or when aesthetic, one artistic risk. I mean, it's it's also there's
1: also this question of kind of where people get their information now, which I think was one of the things we were hoping to talk about. Um, and one of the distinguishing traits of this generation is that they are in real time conversation with the rest of the world because of their you know, technological uh, set of. You know, it's this is the cliche had always been in the conversation about the earlier generation that, you know, oh, this is the Chinese Richter. This is the Chinese Warhol. And that kind of rested on this idea of a time lag of, you know, one to five years between a style that would be popular uh, somewhere outside of China, and uh, not even one to five years, I mean, one to 80 years, right? Because the communist art historiography basically stopped with Impressionism. So in the 80s, you had a you know 10-year Impression- digestion impressionism period. Impressionism was radical. Right, right, right. Yeah. But I mean, so, yeah. so that was why the 80s were such a rich yeah. time because suddenly artists were digesting everything that had happened since... The beginning of the 20th century essentially and even through the 90s and 2000s i mean like we just talked about post-sense sensibility it has a very interesting relationship to the the ybas the young british artists people like Damien Hurst and tracy Emmen and you know other hmm. now titans of the global market but um at that point still very kind of underground figures or 10 years before that had been underground figures so you have now a group of young artists who see exhibitions happening all around the world when they open up i mean the, the place everyone still goes it's the most ghetto interface is called art baba which is a joke you know of course on alibaba um, and it's, it's a BBS. I mean, it's like an old school BBS with a column of posts and a column of images and infinite scroll down kind of loop. But if you go there, literally within hours, you will see, I mean, I just was looking at it while I was in Miami and it was incredible to just see, you know, that the show you had been at an hour before is already completely updated with a photo set. And some kid in Chengdu or in, in Shenyang is, is looking at that and, and absorbing this all in real time. And of course, that's just, you know, the actual, these Chinese shows that are happening, but people are updating from shows all over the world. And they're just, you know, this sort of army of of users kind of generating all of this, this content. To say nothing of Weibo and Weixin and all the other networks that everyone's on.
0: Um, so when would you, I mean, if we have to put this on a timeline, I mean, when would you say this started? As a, uh, in other words, the internet became a major... 2006. 2006. Was there a a signature event? Um,
1: So an artist, a little self-promotion, we're doing a major show in January, opens on the 18th with an artist called Xu Zhen, uh, born 1977 in Shanghai and sort of the key protagonist of the Shanghai scene for all of these years. He in was always doing many things besides art making. You know, running nonprofit spaces, curating exhibitions. Um, in two thousand six, he launched this website called Hey Shao Hui, and the Hey was with the mouth radical, so it was like Hey Shao Hui, like you know, mafia, but also Hey Society, hey, hey, hey. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, and that was the precursor or the predecessor to to our Baba. In fact, it's the same code. It's just that the name Hei got taken by another internet company that now goes by Hi Hei, and his kind of went on. But from the second that launched, and it was a very organic kind of artist-generated initiative, um, you had a, a consistent public network. I mean, of course, in the years before that, people were communicating over MSN and whatever the technologies of that time were. But, but really, uh, the launch of, of this website was was key to the whole development of this next generation sensibility. Um, And I mean, these people aren't dumb either. They read all of the Western websites too. And we should also say that, I mean, and I was even part of this in 2008, for example, we launched a Chinese web version of Art Forum. Um, Art Info is now in Chinese. The Art Newspaper is now with my former bosses at the Modern Media Group, you know, alongside Leap. I mean, Leap was part of this whole movement too. Um, But you have actually a rather robust landscape of art information that's being provided you know on a on a weekly daily
0: basis and matthew how would you say as i mean because you know phil is is a curator and a scholar whereas you're a practicing artist I, i mean how does it feel from your point of view do you think that uh you have this you have you have more in common with your peers in china now that you you're talking the same language as as them as somebody who comes from a Uh, a Western background? Uh, I actually think it's really difficult
2: sometimes for Westerners to work
0: in China, especially
2: in terms of trying to engage in in what's occurring here socially and culturally. I mean, in my opinion, I feel almost it's hard to avoid any political connotation with anything you do in China in terms of what you speak about, what you display, what you wear. Um, I feel and you know this is it's a, it's a politically charged society um and um if you try to create sort of uh, works that are impossible dissent or or try to in some ways um expose maybe some of the 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 darker outcomes of 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 uh of what's been occurring over the past 10 15 years in terms of development and people getting left behind and Sort of these growing social inequalities, um, I, I think uh, <clears throat> as a Western artist, you're sometimes sidelined as as sort of not being not completely understanding what's happening here or why it has come about this way, um, and it can be it can be a, a bit difficult. Um, but I, I, I still believe, as I, as I said earlier, that, you know, some of the most potent art that is coming out right now um, internationally around the world is one that has a, a social engagement, you know, instead of sort of um, consistently playing with different sort of aesthetic fields or, or you, you know, sometimes I'm. Let's take example like something like Bruce High Quality Foundation out of New York, which constantly is like a, a new big player. I'm sure they were pretty big at, at at Basel this year, but I see that as sort of a constant reprocessing of old aesthetics and using sort of uh, continually reusing. Um, Ugo, if yeah. you will, Yeah, right? yeah, and and you know, for me, the most exciting art is one that is 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 at least. Uh, socially engaged and maybe this comes out for me as my also as a background is doing photojournalistic work and and whatnot I, I like like to see you know something that's sort of half in reality and half not in in a sense and and sometimes I feel that's missing um from uh this younger generation you know uh, like when I saw the on off show um I saw some amazing pieces and 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 whatnot. But, You know, I also, uh, I did, uh, I visited Zhang Dali's studio for the first time uh, a few weeks ago to do an interview. And and he was just, it was so amazing seeing or realizing the breadth of his practice and how he, you know, um, sort of like his second history series where he sort of dismantled the photo retouching, of um, like 50s and 60s propaganda photography. He like tracked down the original photographs. And, uh, with, this which, is uh,
0: Zhang Dali, the guy who used to do the graffiti heads. He, he used Beijing. to do
2: graffiti heads and yeah. he also did full body casts of migrant workers. And uh, I, I was just... So impressed in terms of how he sort of observed what was occurring around him, or how the the city was changing dynamically and who was coming and who was going and and created really amazing art. Art pieces that were could be taken by themselves as being seeing beautiful, but also just sort of had you know a, a deep resonance in terms of, of 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 the times that he was making. Yeah, there's them a in.
1: lot of great positions from that kind of middle generation that have been a little bit brushed over. You know, people not quite in that uh, the F four group. You know, I named after the the famous pop band of of what you know the auction painters, and not. In this kind of uh, post nineteen eighties generation, either I mean there, it, there's some really wonderful things that I think will be rediscovered as the as the scene continues to mature.
0: What about an engagement with Chinese traditions? Because it seems I mean we've been talking about <clears throat> how there's a, basically a globalized youth who are engaging with their contemporaries around the planet. Um, are you seeing these people also engaging with the Chinese aesthetic traditions? Oh, you mean art, art,
2: art, <laughs> art?
1: There's a there's <laughs> definitely a vogue for for the new ink painting right now. That's kind of another um, sort of sub trend in in our little part of the world. Um, but I, I mean. Do you think that society in China is really all that connected to tradition at this point? I, I, I no, mean, yes no, and I, no, right? Uh, it's yeah, good. I agree. And it's, um, I, I mean, I, I think you're always better off arguing that it isn't at all than that it. Completely is, and um, and certainly this generation we've been talking about is
0: is more in that. In that well, I guess but maybe I can rephrase the question. Um, it, I, you know, in both in terms of visual arts and also music and theater, it seems to me that one of the problems in China with with contemporary Chinese culture is that the establishment seeks to fossilize the traditions. And And
1: and the outside seeks to fetishize them. Yes.
0: And then it sort of cuts off the ability to, you know, have a real engagement with them. I mean, it's it's
1: funny. Just actually, two nights ago, a major show opened at the Metropolitan Museum in New York called "Ink Art: Past as Present in in Chinese Contemporary Art" or something like this. And it was sort of a misnomer because it's not actually a show of ink art, but it's it's in the in the Chinese galleries, you know, where where the great sort of Song and Yuan and Ming paintings are generally housed that have been cleared out to. Uh, how's what what one observer over Wei Xin described as a graveyard of um, everything from Fang Li Jun and key moments from the eighties and nineties to people who are working today in a kind of uh, retro traditional manner. It's I, I you know, it was just interesting watching some of the younger artists' res- response to that on Facebook and other places today. I mean, one one guy a guy called Yan Xing, a v- fairly well known you know young performance artist. Um, based here in Beijing who spends a lot of time in the states now you know was was commenting you know do they really think that if they come to china you know it's all going to be bruce lee and crouching tiger hidden dragon um and and, and had this impression that you know this this show was was fostering that kind of an impression so i don't know it's um
2: i mean i i, I liked how you said sort of the... How tradition has become sort of fossilized, and then outsiders have definitely fetishized it. But I think the 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 big thing that needs to be taken into consideration is that sort of uh, this like a lineage like of craft and of painting of all these traditional um, sort of creative outlets hit a huge gap, you know, in the 50s through the 70s, and especially during the Cultural Revolution. And, and sort of in some ways, how do you recover from that? You know, something that was especially with, with, uh, with the most major of sort of the artistic production out of China really came from like master-apprentice type relationships and the passing down of all these skills and, and you know, all of a sudden hit – A a very massive road bump for a number of decades. And how does that get regained? Or how does that even become part of what's occurring in China right now? Or is is that still an art to a certain extent? I I would
1: also add to that, uh, it's this kind of stock narrative we were talking about of contemporary Chinese art has yet to be completely enshrined. And certainly... The artists who started working in the 90s didn't have full knowledge of what the artists who had been working in the 80s had done. It's only been really in the second part of the first decade of the new century that the historiography of kind of the stars and scars through 85, through 89, through kind of political pop and cynical realism through the late 90s and on into the new century was was completely laid out uh, and contested by different people. So, I mean, young artists now... M- sure, see themselves in some kind of relationship to Chinese traditional culture. They also can't but see themselves in relationship to a now 35, 40 year long history of Chinese contemporary art. And that's that's really interesting.
0: On that note, I think we should move on to the final segment of our show. Uh, recommendations. Okay, Matthew, why don't you start?
2: Um, I'm going to continue uh, in the trend of my last recommendations is returning to my true expertise, which is, is, is Chinese music and that there are going to be three very excellent shows this coming week, Um, Tuesday, Wednesday, oh wait, Wednesday, Yeah, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday at XP and they're secret shows and I'm not going to say any of the lineups but all three nights are unpublicized and they're being put on for very famous producers coming from the United States and uh, if you're cool, you might be there. That sounds way too cool for me. (laughs) <laughs> but maybe <laughs> all right
0: uh, I hope the timing of the release of this podcast works for that but anyway we'll, uh, we'll and if see. you weren't there so sorry yeah <laughs> you're obviously not cool enough
1: Phil I actually have two um, the first is a, a book that I I stumbled upon recently um, Stephen Greenblatt's The Swerve How the World Became Modern which is a really wonderful Intellectual history of of essentially the, the beginnings of the Renaissance. Uh, I'm talking about you know how Poggio Bracciolini this. Um papal secretary discovered Lucretius and how that's actually the font of our whole sort of contemporary outlook on the world. Uh, and it's written like an adventure and it's just it's really a joy to read. Um, and then the other, which is a little closer to what we've just been talking about, is a piece by uh, actually an old classmate of mine, Cole Roscom, that was actually the cover story in the November issue of Art Forum which is a profile of the architect Wang Shu, who won the Pritzker Prize last year, the first Chinese architect to do so. And in fact, the first time a Chinese artist or architect has been on the cover of Art Forum. And Cole actually uses this uh, piece. He's now a professor at the uh, Hong Kong U in the architecture department. But he he uses this piece as a way to talk not just about Wang Shu's very interesting buildings, but sort of about the intellectual history of architecture in China from the 80s onward and how a lot of the ideas we just discussed in in the artistic
0: space kind of came uh, into China through architecture. Fantastic. I'm going to recommend something that you just inspired me uh, is the Phoenix TV's new headquarters in Beijing. It's just uh, uh, yeah. on the south uh, west corner of the massive block on, on Chiang Park. And it's one of the more interesting new buildings, I think, in Beijing. It's, uh, it's, uh, the, like CCTV, uh, the building has been apparently nearly complete for I don't know how many years. Like and they still CCTV. haven't moved in. <laughs> it's like an
2: inverted black hole in a strange way on the top and across the street there's a big red soviet block building and you can break into the roof there and look down into it and take photos from it if you want there we go that's the real recommendation the
0: ladder is really sketchy though (laughs) (laughs) well uh phil and matthew thank you very much this has been a really enlightening discussion for me and i hope our listeners enjoy it too and we hope to have you back again soon yeah absolutely thank you Thanks again, gentlemen, and we will see you or you may hear us next week again on the Seneca Podcast.